0: Well, it's been said that children are proof that God has not given up on humanity. Every time uh, another child is conceived and born, God is giving us reason for hope. Well, that's exactly the point of today's message. In fact, our core reality today is that God illustrates His ongoing agenda of redeeming love in the context of family. God illustrates His ongoing agenda of redeeming love in the context of family. The fact that we continue to have babies is a demonstration that God's purposes are ongoing he's not done yet he has been redeeming us from the beginning and just to to quickly take a look at what that means as we say this God created everything from nothing for his glory and pleasure all of us every person was designed by God created specifically by him for that purpose to reflect his glory to be an intimate relationship with him in a way that glorifies and pleases him and we are meant to enjoy that relationship of perfect intimacy with him forever he has given us the creation as an expression of himself to enjoy however in the very beginning in genesis chapter 3 as you know we decided what god gave us what god designed us for wasn't enough we'd rather listen to somebody else the tempter saying you know i think god's holding back from you i think you could do better if you do this your way instead of god's way and from that moment when adam and eve decided you know I know God said that of all the things on earth, there's only one that we can't do. I think maybe there's a secret mystery in this. And if I do that thing, well, maybe the serpent's right. And I'll be just like God. So they did that thing. They did it their way, just as we do things our way, rather than fulfilling our purpose, the reason for which we're created. And in so doing, we actually undermine what we are seeking. Adam and Eve wanted to be like God. The problem was they were already like God. They were created in His image. And by trying to do it their way, they distorted that image. And ever since then, God has been seeking to get things set right with the human race. Not seeking as if, hey, well, let me call an audible here. They really blew this. Let me try and fix it. It has been his sovereign plan from before the beginning of time that the serpent crusher would come, defeat the interloper, defeat the enemy of our souls, redeem God's people, so that out of this rebellious creation, he would bring a people back to himself. A good and loving father whose love endures even when those that he created to love him failed to do so. That's a tough concept for us to really grasp. I don't know that there is a good way for us to get it outside of the context of family. Now, I could be wrong about that, but I don't think I am. I've tried to see other pictures in humanity of what it looks like to be in a relationship where the one that you made chooses not to love you or ignores you forgets about you. And yet, you love them with a giving, sacrificial love that goes beyond their forgetfulness, their short attention span, their ungratefulness. And I have not yet been able to find one that gives that same picture. Parents, however, get it. (laughs) Children, have a short attention span, do they not? Now, you may not be a parent, but every one of you is a child. And if we're honest, we can recognize that as we grew up, whether we're toddlers or teenagers or adults, as we grew up, having our parents give us everything, starting with life, right? Kind of a big deal. We grew up, and, as we should, started to pursue what growth brings, independence. And how often did we fail to demonstrate gratitude to our parents? How often in our growth did we decide, boy, my mom and dad just really must hate me, or they would give me what I want? Now, maybe you were mature enough not to actually Say it with that kind of an attitude. But didn't we all, at various points, feel like mom and dad were holding back? And if they'd just get out of our way, then we could fulfill our destiny. That's what we do with God. If God would just get out of the way and let me do my thing, everything would be better. If God would just give me what I want, if he would answer my prayers the way I pray them, the way I want them to be answered, and if he doesn't, well, I just don't believe in him anymore. Well, that's logical, but I I won't even deal with that. I get mad and I stomp my feet because my father doesn't do what I say. I'm not sure anything else other than family can give us the picture of God's relationship to us in that same way. There's a reason that God designed marriage, sexuality, and family to go together. Because the picture we see in marriage, the picture that we see in the physical act of marriage and all that goes along with that emotionally, spiritually, and psychologically, the the picture that we have in parenting and in being parented, all of it floods together. And if you watch closely through the scriptures, when we see these pictures come about, there is an overlap in the illustrations of marriage and sexuality and family over and over again. When God is both husband and father, there is a picture that's bigger than we can get intellectually that we have to get somewhere at a gut level family gives us that context as we've looked at god's design for marriage sexuality and family we've seen that marriage is built into <clears throat> excuse me built into the created order and serves to illustrate god's relationship to his people We looked at God's meaningful standards of sexual integrity and saw that they're not random but reflect and illustrate his own character. Today, we're going to consider the greater context of family and specifically children as God's intentional product of marriage and sexuality. God's intent for reproduction was not merely to create more people but specifically to populate the earth with his image through his image bearers. His design for family gives context and meaning to the reproduction that he deliberately built into creation. Now, we're just getting started, and I'm already over time for my uh, plan here. I want to just let you know, it is utterly inadequate to try to capture these concepts in a single sermon, period. There's no way for me to do that. But what I do want us to get today is to to be able to grasp the concept in a big picture way of how the family context is part of God's design, completely inseparable and interconnected with marriage and sexuality, so that he can illustrate to us his purposes in redeeming love, so that he can illustrate to us his relationship to his people. So... Uh, That said, let's jump into it. First, God made family the foundational unit of society. God made family the foundational unit of society. So before the church, there was family. Before the nation, before Israel, there was family. Before there was any. Nation. Before there was ever such a thing as civil governments or cities, there was family. In fact, before the fall, there was family. Turn to Genesis chapter 1 if you would. We'll come back to Deuteronomy as we read earlier. We'll take a look at that. But turn to Genesis chapter 1, a passage that we've already seen in this series. So many of these things are interconnected. Verses 27 and 28 of Genesis 1 read like this. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. God created humanity to rule in his place, to be his his vassal kings, if you will, in ruling his creation, in the old King James we would say, to have dominion over it. We rule as his representatives. But don't miss out on the fact that the very first command he gives is to be fruitful and multiply. Multiply to go out and do that thing that's built into the created order in the context of the man and woman in covenant relationship, which he'll clarify in chapter 2. But the fruitfulness is that when men and women participate in the relationship that God has designed them for, there is a fruit bearing a reproduction that comes from that as the man and the woman, each a partial picture of what God intends come together, share that DNA, which they could not have understood at the time of the writing. But we understand differently now that the the chromosomes that God has put into you are shared from contributions from both of your parents. This was God's design. And as God did this, he blessed it. It was his command. It was his intention. It is the foundation of society. This is chapter one. Sin doesn't show up until chapter three. So as we talked about last week, throw away the idea that sex is dirty. Sex is dirty when it's not done God's way. When it is done God's way, it is holy and pleasing to him anything outside of that is, if I can use an old word, an abomination to God. It's not a small thing. It is a huge thing. In that context, God creates family, and He gives us this family unit. Notice this. Children are the purposeful fruit of marriage and sexuality. Children are the purposeful fruit of marriage and sexuality. God made family the foundational unit of society. Everything else is built on that. Those of you who enjoy worldview discussions, this is the principle of subsidiarity, that the most efficient and effective foundational unit is that smallest, most basic unit. And the smallest, most basic unit we have in society is the family. Everything else is comprising that, or is... is uh, composed of that. God illustrates the ongoing agenda of re- his ongoing agenda of redeeming love in the context of family. He made family the foundational unit of society. Children are the purposeful fruit of marriage and sexuality. So much so that a little later in Genesis chapter 9, after God reboots the system if you will, he floods the earth, destroys, passes judgment because it has become utterly corrupt. Those that he saves in the ark, which is a picture of Christ who would come later, those that He saves, when they come out from the ark, the first command that God gives them in Genesis 9, 1 is the same thing He gives to Adam and Eve here. Be fruitful and multiply. Go, build families. Do this. This is how you honor God. Next, notice this point. God made family the primary means of discipleship. God made family the primary means of discipleship. Back to Deuteronomy 6. As God is bringing Israel out of of Egypt, out of the slavery that they have had, this bondage, now He is bringing them into a land as it's described here, flowing with milk and honey. In other words, it's a very prosperous land. It's a land of promise where God says, here's how I'm going to pour out my good things, my good blessings on you. But understand, you didn't do this. You're you're not getting this because you earned it. In fact, just the opposite. He demonstrates for them that they didn't do it by saying, you're going into a land that... You didn't develop into cities that you didn't fortify, into houses that you didn't stock. All of these good things that you are receiving, I built for you through those whom the land will now vomit out. Why? Because they, those who did not know him, did not have the law, they didn't have the advantages that Israel has. Those people did things that were in violation of God's created order, of the law that was the law before the law was given as law. Before God said, thou shalt not, the principles were already built into the world. We saw in Romans 1 last week that man is without excuse because we know certain things about God. We know certain realities just from creation itself. When we have the word, which was the gift of God to Israel, the the revelation of himself through the law, it's the gift of God to the church, the revelation of himself in Christ and the New Testament that tells the, the story and connects the dots. In that, we have more specific, more clear revelation of what was always built into society. So he brings them out of Egypt. He sends them into the new land. He says, if you're going to go in here, understand this. You are mine. You are my people. And over and over again in in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, he says, I've called you out to be separate, to be holy, to be different. Because the masses, the world, doesn't do what it was designed to do what I gave it to do. But you, you will. You have been given specific instructions because you are my children. Now in, in Deuteronomy 6, he is telling them, look, you need to not only obey me, but you need to pass this on. Notice what he says in, in verses 4 and following. Hear, O Israel... The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Now notice this. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Okay, It's not just something that you know you, you, you wear as a label. He's about to tell them to wear it as a label. But he said this is to be part of you in the depths of who you are. It should be present in your mind, in your emotions, in your affections, in your desires, constantly. These commands are to be on your hearts. Seven, impress them on your children. Now, that's not really that hard to see. I, I look out here and I see a couple of Notre Dame fans out in the, in the crowd here. <clears throat> now, I know you Notre Dame fans, when your children were growing up, did not buy them Michigan clothing, right? That did not happen, right? Because the things that are important to you as parents, you pass on to your children. You pass on a legacy. If we don't do that with the things of the faith, what does that say about whether it's on our hearts? What does it say about how important it is to us? That which is on our hearts, we will, we must impress upon our children. The commands I give you are to be on your hearts, impress them on your children. How do we do that? Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Now again, these principles are sort of intuitive. The things that matter to you, you talk about, you celebrate. If you, uh, you know, if you love music, then music is going to be a part of your home. It's going to be around you. You're going to be playing it. You're going to be listening to it. You're going to be singing. You're going to be doing these things. If food is important to you, your home is going to be built on these things. If you're a sports family, you can't get away from that. It's everywhere. The things that matter to you, you talk about when you're walking around, whatever you're doing, it's just naturally a part of you. What fills your heart will overflow in the demonstration of your life. So what does that tell us about parenting? As the primary place of discipleship, your children will learn your values. Always. Children are a mirror that sometimes is very, very damning. When I see my children, whether I want to or not, I see their mistakes and their successes, and I must recognize that it comes from what I taught them, whether with my mouth or with my actions. Usually, both always always with my actions they're going to become who i teach them to become old adage in coaching is that you teach what you tolerate the things that i let my children do in my home i am endorsing in their lives and children will always take it a step farther that's always how it works If you see a child with a rebellious attitude, guess where they get that? They get it from their parents. Because it's in you. Each one of us is a sinner. So our job as parents is not just to let our child's natural personality come out, but to shape it, to instruct, to teach. It's really important for us to recognize this. I am not a good and loving parent when I let my child do everything they want to do and have everything they want to have and say everything they want to say. In the book of Proverbs, we learn that folly is in the heart of the child, but the rod of discipline drives it out. Proverbs is replete with messages about parenting, about passing wisdom on and the beginning of wisdom is knowing fearing understanding the lord what what moses is telling the people of israel here is that the things that are most important in your life must be the things of god period nothing else matters As we read from Psalm 127 earlier, Solomon, the wise king, who did everything well and also missed the point of everything in life. Later, as an older man comes back and says, I missed the point of everything in life. Don't do what I did. Learn wisdom from my mistakes and from my instructions. So he writes the book of Proverbs to pass that on. But in in Psalm 127, this is in vain. You rise early and go to bed late, striving to provide. The Lord grants sleep to those He loves. In other words, trust God to handle your business. That doesn't mean don't work. And He has lots of Proverbs extolling the virtues of hard work. But don't lose perspective. Your job, parents, will never, ever be as important as the main job that you have, which is our next point. The main job of parenting is to lead our children to the Lord. The main job of parenting is to lead our children to the Lord. God made family the primary means of discipleship. And the main job of parenting is to lead our children to the Lord. Now, We didn't call it discipleship in the Old Testament. That's a a Greek concept, a Greek term that we find in the New Testament. It means one who follows and imitates the teachers. Man, isn't that exactly what children do? They become their parents because they follow in their parents' footsteps. Some of you know the good of that and the horror of that. I have to tell you, I, I remember teaching fourth grade for my sister when she was pregnant with Josh and then later on with, with Maisie. And uh, as, we, as I was dealing with these kids, kids in elementary school get a lot of the say no to drug stuff, right? Nod your head if you know what I'm talking about, right? And so every kid that I knew in elementary school, everyone who had parents who smoked and drank and did different things, it's, man, I will never do that. I don't want that. It's ruining my family. I wish my parents would quit smoking. I wish this and that and so on. And almost to a person, by the time they get to high school, they end up doing those same things. Statistically, that's a reality. Now, statistics show what has happened. They're not a predictor of your future. You get to determine that. But statistically, children of smokers smoke, children of drinkers drink, children of divorce get divorced, children of abuse abuse. The grace of God carries us through that, and as parents, it is our responsibility to bring our children to the truth of God and to live lives as examples of God that give them a reason to want Him. To give them a reason to want to choose God, one of my goals as a, as a young parent was to make sure that my children always knew how much let me take a drink of water. How much I adored their mother, how much I respected their mother, so that someday When they were making choices, they would want the relationship that we have. How do you do that? Have a relationship worth wanting. i got to fix me before I can guide my children. If I want to have the right kind of family, I have to start with the right kind of marriage. And if I'm going to have the right kind of marriage, I have to be the right kind of husband. I have to deal with me, not her. She has to deal with her. She can't be the right kind of husband. She got to work on being the right kind of wife. We can't be the right kind of parents until we are the right kind of people. Our job in leading our children must start with leading ourselves. Spurgeon said, Let no Christian parents fall into the delusion that Sunday school is intended to ease them of their personal duties. The first and most natural condition of things is for Christian parents to train up their own children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. He's drawing from Ephesians 6, 4 there. It's the job of parents. Paul says in Ephesians specifically to fathers, not to exasperate your children, maybe because... As dads, we can be more exasperating, I don't know. Not to exasperate your children, but instead to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. In other words, don't get so caught up in your demands as a dad, what looks right, what other people think, what your own desires are, that you drive your children nuts because they can't live up to your standards. Don't be so caught up in your own things that your kids wonder whether you love that more or them more. But dedicate yourself, mothers and fathers, dedicate, and grandparents, by the way, the job doesn't end there. In Deuteronomy we see it's pass it on to your children, their children, and the children after them. Right? We're going to continue to pass that on. Stretch it out, aunts and uncles, you still have a responsibility. Stretch it out, church members, friends and family, we have a responsibility to pass this on to the next generation. But within the context of family, parents, we have to take seriously our role of teaching our children, not Oh, you know what? I'm going to get them to church and we're going to let the pastor do it. Or I'm going to get them to church and we're going to let the Sunday school teacher do it. Or we're going to get them to church and let the youth group leader do it. Don't farm it out. Those are good supplements, but there is never a replacement for the relationship that the children have with their parents. Therefore... When you, as a parent, prioritize teaching your children the things of God from the scriptures, that will become important to them. It will become a foundation stone in their life that they can build on later. If you talk about it and you ship them off to somebody else, it communicates to them that this is a secondary priority for you. It's kind of important, but not important enough for you to personally invest your time and energy into it we as parents and grandparents must communicate to our children the reality that is already true that there is nothing more important in their lives and therefore nothing more important to us than for them to know God personally through a relationship with Jesus Christ. We can't make those choices for them our job is to lead them, to teach, to give them an example to follow. God made family the foundational unit of society. God made family the primary means of discipleship. Notice that God made family a natural illustration of the gospel. God made family a natural illustration of the gospel. Let's flip to the New Testament. We see John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you've been with us for a while, your book may automatically fall open to the book of Acts. Right before that is the book of John. John chapter 1. starting with verse 9, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. And though the world was made through Him, the world did not recognize Him. He came to that which was His own, but His own did not receive Him. Yet, to all who did receive Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, not of, of the reproductive process, right? nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Spiritual children. Turn a little farther to Ephesians chapter 1. Once you get through the book of Acts, you'll see the letters start with Romans and the two Corinthian letters. After that, Galatians and Ephesians. And in Ephesians chapter 1, which we'll begin our series on next week, we see this beautiful reality of our adoption into God's family. Starting with verse 3. which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. <laughs> with all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will. The mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. God is using family as the illustration of His relationship to his people. And specifically in the gospel, we see this. So in the gospel, excuse me, we are able to see God as Father giving us something that we could not have apart from Him. What makes it even more beautiful is it goes beyond the natural reproduction. God chooses to use natural reproduction supernatural but natural reproduction in bringing Christ to earth. He uses human sexuality to bring the Messiah. So God puts on flesh as we see in Matthew and Luke into this baby born in Bethlehem coming the same way the rest of us come but with a different father. Now For us, we're not part of that. We're not naturally begotten of God. Jesus alone is the begotten Son. It's interesting that God uses this exact picture of marriage, sexuality, and family as the context in which He reveals the Son, the only begotten of the Father. For us, it goes even a step farther He gives us the picture of adoption. You are not my child. And yet I choose you. And not only do I choose you, I don't choose you like a slave child, like Cinderella and her wicked stepmother. No, no. I choose to make you mine and to give you the full rights and inheritance as sons and daughters of God. This is, is the picture of the gospel. As we take a look at this, understand that family relationships help us to understand both God and ourselves. Family relationships help us to understand both God and ourselves. So in parenting, we learn about God. As children, whether young children or adult children, as the progeny, the offspring, we learn about ourselves. If you have ever raised children or been around somebody raising children and you've watched a two-year-old, then you have a great picture to help you understand the nature of sin. There's a lot of mine, no, a lot of pushing for my way, A lot of doubting what mom and dad tell you. A lot of times, you know, at one, you say, do this, they do it, you know, they understand. Mom gives me food, you know, dad, you know, as I used to tell my kids, dads are in charge of tickling and spanking and things like that. Mom's in charge of food and responsible stuff. But anyway, as we're going through this, daddy reads me a story, daddy, you know, all the things that that go along with this, but at two, all of a sudden, I don't really care so much about what mom gives me or dad gives me. I'm going to do my thing. And then we get a little bit of sense back for a while. And then we go back to two-year-old stage and we get to be teenagers. And then we get a little bit of sense for a little, a little while. And then we get to be you know 19 or 20 and we go through the same thing again. We think we know more. And then eventually we lose our hair and turn gray and, and we start to realize maybe mom and dad weren't as dumb as I thought they were when I was young that's the same cycle we go through with the lord we see the blessings of god we see the instructions of the scriptures we see the truth and we think we got a better plan well that's great but i want to shade it a little bit i want to take god's word uh, but i'm going to kind of inject a little bit of my own understanding I'm going to take God's Word, but I'm going to shape it according to what the culture has taught me. Because that just doesn't make sense anymore. That, just, that seems so narrow-minded. We talked about that last week in the concepts of sexuality and, and sexual morality. We've changed things because we want to color God's Word with the crayons of the culture. That's not how it works. What's true is is always true let's not be confused as parents we learn what it's like to watch our children receive and forget to be grateful we see in the family context we see God's initiating love When an infant is born, it does not love its parents. It doesn't know how. It has no concept of it. But its parents love it. I loved my children from before I saw their faces. But once they emerged from hiding and I was able to see them and look into their face, my life was never the same. They didn't bring that to me. I brought that to them. They had nothing to offer. A child can't feed itself. Its parents have to feed it. A child can't clothe itself. Its parents have to clothe it. We offer nothing. We are totally dependent on our Father. We learn this in the context of family. We see God's redeeming love We break his heart and yet he loves us and seeks to restore us and reaches out to us. How often do we as children break our parents' hearts? Maybe we don't get it until we're parents and our children break our hearts. If you are a parent for the first time of a a newborn or a young child, let me assure you that amidst the most amazing joys of life, they'll rip your guts out and stomp on them. That's what kids do just like you did to your parents. They won't mean to, but they'll be caught up in their way and they'll forget. God's redeeming love reaches to us when we're not worthy of that love. As children, we're lots of times not worthy of our parents' love. And yet they love us. They reach. They restore We see also a picture of God's holy love. What do we mean by God's holy love? God has standards. There is right and there is wrong. And God loves us in such a way as to not ever neglect those standards of holiness. And yet, He disciplines the one He loves. He doesn't abuse. He doesn't punish he may bring the rod of discipline, but He doesn't beat us with wrathful vengeance. All of that wrath has already been paid. That's for those who are outside the family. Those who don't belong to God in Christ receive the wrath and the punishment, but for His own children, God brings discipline, loving Caring, often painful discipline for the purpose of making us holy, of making us like Him. There's an enduring quality to God's love while we as children have a short attention span. We take His blessings and we're caught up in gratitude for the moment and then we move on and we forget of the love that He gave it from but his love still endures. What are the consequences of getting family wrong? If God made family the foundational unit of society, if he made family the primary means of discipleship, and if he made it a natural illustration of the gospel, then we need to understand that when we get it wrong, there's a cost, there's a consequence. Moving fairly quickly, because I think we've established the foundation for these already, we see that it distorts the image of God. It distorts the image of God. We call that blasphemy. Blasphemy. That, in a nutshell, means getting the image of God wrong, distorting the picture of who He is, describing Him falsely. When we we get family wrong, which is intended to illustrate His redeeming love, it's a picture of God and and his relationship with people, it distorts his image. Secondly, we see that it undermines the fabric of society. If it's the foundational unit of society, when we get family wrong, the fabric of society begins to unravel. Look around you. The problem is not in the White House. It's in my house. The problem is where we live in the raising of children god desires godly offspring but when we get our marriage relationship wrong when we don't have holiness in our marriage and sexuality we will not have holiness in our family when i don't get holiness right in my own life if i'm not living the, the life that I've been called to live, demonstrating the reality of Christ as I reflect Him through relationships, then that cost has a big effect. It's pulling the thread of the fabric of society. And the whole thing unravels. It distorts the image of God. It undermines the fabric of society. Third, it brings death instead of life. It brings death instead of life. When we get family wrong, it is the worst scenario. Some of you right now, as I say this, don't even like the conversation because you're bearing scars in your soul from a bad upbringing. Parents who are absent or demanding or abusive or untrustworthy, Parents who should have been there for you, but they were chasing their own dreams. Parents who should have been there for you, but they were battling their own addictions. Parents who failed to give you the love that you needed and the wounds cut so deep, sometimes you're not sure you can ever get over it. And the fact that I'm even talking about it today is painful and perhaps even offensive. Marriage, sexuality, and family was given by God as a holy, life-giving thing. When we get it wrong, it has the exact opposite effect. It guts us. It sucks the life out of us. It's one of the reasons that holidays can be so depressing for people all the joy that we're supposed to experience when we get family wrong, when those relationships aren't right, all the holiday stuff, all the wonderful hallmark pictures, it's just a reminder of the darkness and the pain. When we get family wrong, it brings death instead of life. Next, it creates enmity with God. When we get family wrong, it creates enmity with God. That means it puts us at odds with God. In Malachi 2.15, you don't have to look it up right now. It's actually listed for you in your program, I think. In Malachi 2.15, God is uh, speaking through the prophet, and he's condemning Israel. He has spoken condemnation to the priests, those who are leading the worship, because they're they're getting it wrong. They're going through the motions, but they're, they're not giving it 100%. It's not, in the words of Deuteronomy, impressed on their hearts. And as they are are continuing, as Malachi is continuing through his prophecy, the judgment continues beyond the priests to the marriages in Israel. You've been unfaithful to the wife of your youth. Now, there's a literal aspect in which he's judging them for that but there's also a figurative, more metaphorical aspect in that they have been unfaithful to him as a nation. And he says specifically, I desire godly offspring. Over and over in the prophets, we see the condemnation of God's people and the judgment that comes on them because they got marriage and sexuality and family wrong. Ultimately, it's an issue of idolatry when we get it wrong it's an it's an issue of blasphemy they have pictured god wrongly and desired god less than other things and so that judgment based on getting family wrong puts them at odds at enmity with god it it distorts the image of god undermines the fabric of society brings death instead of life Creates enmity with God. Next, when when we get family wrong, it keeps our children from Christ. It keeps our children from Christ. Now, a couple of points that I need to bring out for this. First, notice the verb here is keeps. Our children start out separated from God the same as you and I did. Each one of us is born in sin. We sin because we are sinners. So we start out separated from God and we need His grace to enter a relationship with Him. If I don't actively save my children from the teaching and example of the ungodly, sinful world around them if I don't intervene with the Word of God and the example of God in my life to, if I can borrow this, mitigate the virus, to to get in here and actively intervene they will continue on a sinful track that is natural to their flesh, that is the pressure of the world around them, and don't be mistaken, the devil is regularly seeking to intervene to keep them from God. I must recognize that if I get family wrong, I keep my children on the path of death. Lastly, as much as it keeps our children from Christ, it keeps the world from Christ. It keeps the world from Christ. It does absolutely zero good to preach the gospel if we don't live the gospel in our families. The world will see the testimony of our homes. And when we decide that we get to rewrite the scriptures, or we get to prioritize our own things over God's things, when we set our eyes on the things of earth, not on the things above, why would the world want anything to do with it? If we in the church live like and look like the world around us that does not know God, does not recognize or acknowledge God, Maybe they can acknowledge, oh yeah, I believe in God, I believe in the Creator. I'll... But they don't know Him. If we look the same as they do, what do they care about the gospel you preach? It's a powerful illustration of the truth of God loving us beyond ourselves. It's not reckless love in the sense that God is careless or thoughtless. It's enduring love in that God does love us at great expense to Himself, so much so that He sent Jesus to die in our place while we were His enemies so that we could become His children. If we get family wrong, it keeps the world from Christ. God illustrates His ongoing agenda of redeeming love in the context of family. When we get it right, it's a beautiful, holy, powerful thing. When we get it wrong, it's a hideous, unholy, but equally powerful thing. Whether we get it right or wrong, it has a lasting impact on our understanding and communication of God. And his relationship with his people. Now, none of us has a perfect family. Amen? Not one of us. Not that person that, that you wish you had their family, they don't have a perfect family either. And if you're feeling overwhelmed with guilt because you've blown it and you haven't gotten family right in your own household, nobody else has either. Now, some of us may be farther afield than others. We have different advantages and privileges, if I can use that term without getting too crazy today. None of us has a perfect family. None of us is going to forge a perfect family. So to some extent, we all end up getting it wrong. Praise God that His Redeeming love, the love that He designed family to illustrate, is available to us even in the midst of our failure. God wants to redeem you. He wants to pull you back from the hell you've put yourself in. He wants to buy you back to pay the price for your sin. He wants you to be His. He wants to redeem you. He wants to redeem your family. Give him your heart today. Search the scriptures to know his heart that you might rightly reflect the reality of Christ through your family relationships. Let's pray. Father God, as we...